Well, I'm excited to be here on Tuesday night and share that with you. I got to see Brad teach a lot of that material uh, on this summer. He hosts something, he and um, Brad Gray, who you may also remember was here a few years ago, if you've been here for a few years, uh, host the Infusion Bible Conference. They hosted it this summer, and that whole thing was on the, on, uh, the life of the Apostle John. There's lots of great, just like really deep, rich information about who he was, where he came from, why he was equipped to go preach to this group that he was equipped to. Some of what some of it we've used, we've stolen and used in our messages, so some of it you've heard, but some of it will be brand new to you. So I hope you can join us on Tuesday. Well, uh, good morning, church. It's an exciting day here at Genesis. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here, and um, it's exciting because, uh, first of all, as a pastor, I just got to tell you, I'm excited because fall break is over, and you're all back, and I love you guys, and I missed you so much while you were traveling all over the world, and while I was traveling all over the world, and so um, I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm excited also that we've got kids in the room. Uh, kids, kindergarten through fifth, are in the room with us today, as well as students. Kids, if you're in the room, let me hear you make a little noise. Okay, in fairness, I did say a little noise. Uh, so let's try this. Kids, if you're here, let me hear you make a lot of noise. All right, that's a little better. That's a little better. I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the fact that we're celebrating baptism today. If you haven't seen that, uh, we've got, I think, seven baptisms across our two campuses, but we've got three here today in this service that you're going to get to see in just a few minutes. These are people who have committed their lives to Jesus They've entered into eternal life in Christ. They've left death behind and entered life, and they want to get in front of you, their friends and family, and uh, declare that publicly. Isn't that cool? I just love that. And in fact, this, this right here, this is why we've been doing this series this year. We want to see life change. In fact, if you remember uh, back nine months ago now in January when we first brought out this idea of Grow and the book of John, and we said, here's why we want to do this series. It was right from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 20. John 20, 31 says this. It says, but these are written, these words, these, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That word just means the, the Savior that was promised to Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And the reason that John wrote that gospel is the same reason that we decided to do this series, that we're studying through the Gospel of John this year. Uh, that you, dear listener, might find Jesus and believe in his name and by believing have life in his name. And so we're almost done with our study of John for the year. In fact, we've got three weeks after this week and then we'll be done with the book of John. Um, and we have made it to the cross. We have made it to the end of Jesus's earthly life. Or is it? <laughs> You'll have to wait till next week to find that out. Uh, but we're going to leave that question for one more week. And while we do, I want to remind you kind of what we've learned about Jesus uh, through this year-long study. Uh, we, in the book of John, we meet Jesus right after his baptism. He's 30 years old. We can tell from Scripture that he's 30 years old. Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth, and he came down to the Jordan River near Jericho in the south of Israel, uh, where John the Baptist was baptizing people. He came down there to be baptized by John. Now, John doesn't tell us about Jesus' baptism in his gospel. We can learn by reading some of the other accounts of Jesus' life what happened there. And Mark, uh, the gospel writer Mark, says it this way in Mark 1, 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, why would Jesus need to be baptized? He had no need to repent for sin. He had no sin in his life. Jesus was sinless. So why be baptized? Well, if you read Matthew's account, you'll find that John the Baptist struggled with this very question, too. With his baptism, though, Jesus is fulfilling his relationship with God 
by obeying him in every aspect of his life. So he's being obedient. He's practicing obedience. Jesus saw his baptism as a way of advancing God's work and his mission. You could say that he was also giving us an example to follow. Uh, Someone said it this way, Jesus accepted baptism in obedient service to his father. So he was showing others his willingness to take on the mission of solving the problem of sin in the world. And, And why do we do baptisms at Genesis? Well, I think we can see at least three reasons from Scripture. This is one of them, to follow the example of Jesus. We want to uh, follow his example just as uh, Jesus' baptism was detailed in three of the four Gospels. But the fact that he was baptized is captured in all four. We think it's important to follow his example. We often say that Jesus is our model for ministry and for life. Uh, we want to follow the command of Jesus. In Matthew 28, 19, Jesus Uh, commands followers of his to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey. He says, everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then finally, we do it to identify with Jesus. We want to identify with the person of Jesus. We want to identify with Christ. Now, in today's world, you can pretty much identify as anything you want, right? Whatever you say you are, you identify as that. We want to identify with Christ. That is something that happens after you make the decision to follow Jesus. You, you repent and turn to Christ and your sins are forgiven. You're ready to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord and you are ready to follow him. And so for us, baptism is an outward symbol of something that's already taken place inside of us. It's an inward change, but we symbolize that Uh, outwardly we are baptized and when we do we are buried with our sin and we are raised to new life in Christ and uh, your baptism if you were baptized at some point in your life if you're going to be baptized some point in your life if you're being baptized today your baptism is significant for you for sure but it's also important to get in front of this crowd this great crowd of witnesses and to tell them that I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life I want to be a part of God's mission in this world. So let's go back to Mark. Here's what happened at Jesus' baptism. Mark 1.10 says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Heaven was torn open. What an incredible uh, visual for us. Did anybody see the sunrise this morning? No, of course, you you were the 1030 crowd. Of course you didn't. (laughs) It was incredibly beautiful this morning. The sky was red and the clouds were painted across the sky and it was so beautiful, but can you imagine if in in the middle of that, the sky is just torn open. I mean, this is like some real Area 51 stuff right here. It torn open and something descends that you don't recognize. It's like the Spirit of God came down out of heaven and descended on Jesus like a dove. And when Mark tells us that the heavens were torn open, that's supposed to get our attention. It's supposed to to help us realize something significant is taking place. Did others see it? Well, uh, the Apostle John records that John the Baptist saw it. John the Baptist talks about it in his gospel, so maybe others did too. But for Jesus, this was his public anointing as God's Messiah, as, uh, as God's Savior of the world. And for Jesus, it was a reminder that he would never be alone, that God's presence was with him. It was a reminder that Jesus was from God, that God sent him. He was God in the flesh. It was God's way of showing, him that, showing everyone that he was at work in the world that he was going to do something great uh, and make things right again through Jesus. And if that wasn't significant enough that his spirit, that the heavens are torn open and his spirit descends and lands on Jesus like a dove, Mark also records this in verse 11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Just imagine what those words must have meant for Jesus to hear them. 
You know, if you've ever been blessed by a parent, you know how important that is to hear those words. I remember when I was a young adult, uh, I grew up with my dad. My mom and dad divorced when I was very young. Uh, My dad raised uh, me and my two sisters, and um, he had high expectations for me. He wanted me to be a straight-A student. I was a good student, but I wasn't a straight-A student. I didn't meet that expectation. Uh, He wanted me to go to college and study engineering. I went to college and studied engineering for two years and then changed course. You could say the Lord changed my course. I could say my grades changed my course. Um, And then, uh, you know, he, he had these expectations for me. But when I was about 24, 25 years old, my dad came to me and he said, hey, I just want you to know that you've met every expectation I have for you in my life. You don't have to prove yourself to me anymore. He said, he said you, you have done everything you need to do to meet my expectations. And, and as an adult, like that was such a meaningful moment for me. I still remember like where I was when he told me that. Parents, your kids listen to your words. I know if you've got young kids, you probably think they don't, right? You think that they don't hear you until that moment when at the most inopportune time they repeat your words, right? But they do. Your words carry weight with them. And if you have a chance to bless them verbally, you should do that. You should do it early and often. Imagine what it meant for Jesus. With you, I am well pleased. In other words, God says, I delight in you. You are my son. I am proud of you. Can you imagine, can you imagine hearing those words from your heavenly father? I mean, even if your earthly father wasn't so great or your, your parents maybe weren't great parents and never said anything like that to you, Can you just imagine right now that your heavenly father is looking down at you saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, and with you, I am well pleased. Oh, so important to Jesus. Now, what what happened before this, though? What was Jesus like as a kid? I mean, we, we first meet Jesus in the book of John when he's 30 years old, and we don't have a lot of stories Uh, from when he was a kid. I mean, John tells us nothing. We know a few things about his birth from the Christmas story in Luke. Uh, Maybe I could get some help from the kids and students in the room. Kids, uh, what do we know about Jesus's birth? Go ahead and shout it out. He was born on Christmas, okay. Who, Who said star? There was a star? Yeah, there was a star in the sky, right, that led people to him. What else do we know? He was born in a manger. Okay, good. What else? Born in a stable, manger. What else? Anything else? Angel sent three wise men. Yeah, we know that. He was born of a virgin. We know that. He was born in Bethlehem. So we've got, some, we've got a picture of Jesus as a baby in his birth story, maybe as a toddler. We don't know much about him as a kid. Now, we do have this one story of when he was 12 years old and his family went uh, from their home in Nazareth to Jerusalem to uh, be at the Passover, and they left him behind in Jerusalem. And it was three days before they realized he was missing. Now, if you've ever felt like a bad parent, I just want to say, uh, Joseph and Mary got you, all right? But also, do you know how embarrassing it is? Like, if you're leaving the house, and uh, maybe, maybe there's still people in the house, and you back out of the driveway, and you close the garage door, and then a minute later, you have to open the garage door again because you forgot something in the house, and you got to go back in and get it. Anybody ever do that? Not just me? Okay, right? That's embarrassing, right? You walk back, ah, forgot my coat. Ah, I forgot my wallet. Ah, I forgot whatever. Now, imagine that the thing you forgot is your child, 
And instead of a minute later, it's three days later, <laughs> okay? This is what happens to Jesus. And so they come back to Jerusalem, uh, his whole family, and they're searching everywhere for him. And they finally find him in the temple. He's 12 years old. He's sitting in the temple and he's listening to all the teachers. And they're amazed at the questions that he is asking and the way he's engaging in conversation with him. Can you? So this is the only picture we have as G, with Jesus as a as a young man, as a child. And after that, the Bible says in Luke 2.52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And I think that's a great summary of like the next 18 years of Jesus's life from the time he's 12 till the time he's 30. Um, and we, because we all grow from childhood into adulthood, don't we? Uh, I mean, kids, I know if you're a kid in the room, it is hard for you to believe that your parents were ever kids. But they were, I promise. Uh, they were kids once too, and we all grew in, at least in stature, <laughs> uh, maybe not in wisdom, we'll see. But like, so just to prove it to you, here's a picture of me when I was 12 years old, okay? This is me. I know I had the scotch tape haircut. We didn't have a lot of money, so I got the piece of scotch tape across the bangs, and if it was straight-ish, that was good enough, right? Um, but that was me at, at 12, you know, I think I've aged okay. Uh, and so let's, in fact, let's just play a game. I'm going to show you a picture of somebody on our staff. If you don't know our staff, this won't be as much fun for you. But if you know our staff, this might be fun. And then you try to guess who this is now. Okay, here's the first one. Uh, who knows who that is? Ben Krause. Right, that is Ben Krause. That is our uh, groups and outreach pastor, Ben. Uh, that's him today. Uh, he is probably the only scout we have on our crew. Okay, how about this one right here? Who's this? That's Victoria. That's Victoria Fluger. That is from three years ago. Uh, Victoria is <laughs> Victoria's so young. <laughs> I mean, it's like in color and it's in HD. I mean, you can see everything. Okay, how about this one? Here, who's this one? You guys know who this is? This is Clay. This is Clay Howard. Clay is our communication director. He's playing drums today. I thought, I thought Clay had a beard when he was 12, but I guess he doesn't, funnily enough. All right, uh, who's this one uh, here on the right? Matt Wheeler, he's the only twin we have on our crew. So that's him and his twin brother. So there's Matt today. Uh, how about this one? This one's great. Who knows who that is? Yeah, that is our lead pastor, Paul Mumal. He hasn't changed a bit, if you ask me. He looks exactly the same, same smile. Same. He actually has that telephone in his office. It's so weird. Um, okay, who's this? You can tell because it looks just like Seve. That is Justin Tunmore, our worship pastor. Uh, and he is, is always a snazzy dresser. Okay, uh, last one, best one. This is Jenna Flanagan. She's our operations director at our campus, and I couldn't decide if I wanted to make a hair joke or a teeth joke, so I'm not going to make either. Thank you, Matt. Her husband is cracking up right now. Uh, so just like we all grew in stature, hopefully we grew in wisdom, and we all desire to grow in favor with God and men. And Jesus did too. Jesus grew up and he learned, he learned about God. And I thought it would be helpful for us to, to really look at the story of Jesus. We've talked often about how Jesus is our model for life and ministry and how that we can put his life together and we can see what he did and see this pattern of how he made disciples in his three and a half or three and three quarter years of earthly ministry. And so let's do that. Let's, uh, just a few minutes this morning, let's walk through the life of Jesus. Jesus is baptized, and then what happens next? Well, to find out, we need to do some deductive reasoning. 
I don't know if you know this, but the four Gospels are uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They are not necessarily in chronological order. They're written by four different authors who remember things in different ways. But if we do some study and look at the parallels and and using a tool like this, this is called a harmony of the Gospels here. Uh, Harmony of the Gospels sounds like a really really, uh, weighty tome. It's not. It really is just the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're written in parallel, so you can see, uh, chronologically, so you can see where events happen in Jesus' life. So like, here's one event, uh, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Here's all four accounts of that from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so you can kind of see, as you read through this, what order things happen in. And I think if we're gonna use somebody's life as a pattern, I think it's important to know how their life went, right? What they did and where they went and when. And so we look for those parallels. We can read, we can study, we can use a tool like that and find out what happened. So here's what's happened after Jesus's baptism. Mark 1 tells us again, and at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. That, those words at once means right away, right? Immediately after he's baptized. So he's, he's baptized, the heavens are ripped open, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, dove uh, God speaks into his life, and at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Welcome to ministry. Uh, he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, can you see how important that blessing from God must have been if the next thing he was gonna do was go spend 40 days in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by Satan? He, he had to... It's a significant event in his life. He you knew he had to draw on his father's words and he's gonna recall his baptism as uh, he trusts God for strength as he's in the wilderness and he is being obedient in all things. We see in that moment that Satan tempts him three times after he's starved for 40 days and he is obedient every time and not just in the wilderness, but for the rest of his time on earth, he is obedient. After 40 days, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, out of the temptation. John the Baptist looks at him and says, look, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the one I told you about. John the Baptist is down there with his followers. They're baptizing people. Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He points his followers. He says, don't follow me, follow that guy. And some of them do. Some of John's followers leave John the Baptist and start following Jesus. Uh, Actually, we see him pick up a few followers here. John Uh, John, the gospel writer, and Andrew, Andrew's brother Simon, who we'll come to know as Peter, and then Philip and Nathaniel, those five guys. You might call them Jesus' starting five. That's the first five disciples he's got. Uh, These five men start following Jesus, and his ministry begins. Let's take a look at this map, and I'll show you where he goes. So that's down here on the Jordan River, somewhere near Jericho. He immediately goes up all the way up here to the north of Israel on the Sea of Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee. There's a place called Cana, Jesus immediately takes some of those, those guys and some of his family up to Cana. They go up there for a wedding where Jesus performs his first miracle. He uh, turns water into wine. Now, remember, this is 41, 42 days into his uh, ministry after he's baptized. So this is, this is brand new. His first miracle happens there. And then after that, he goes over from Cana to Capernaum. Capernaum was a, a kind of a big town on the Sea of Galilee. He goes over to Capernaum with his family and some of his disciples. And then they go down to Jerusalem, all the way down here to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, for the first Passover celebration. Um, this is one of the ways that we can keep track of time in the Gospels as we count the Passovers, we count the holidays, we can know where Jesus was during those times. He comes down to Jerusalem where he clears the temple out for the first time before the first Passover that we see in Scripture. He's going to do this twice, all right? And then after that, 
uh, he meets, while he's in Jerusalem, he meets with a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees. He's one of the leaders, the, the, the uh, leaders of the Jews. And he's afraid to meet with Jesus during the day. And so he comes out and meets with him at dark. And so because of that, Nicodemus comes out and meets Jesus in the dark. We call him Nick at night. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s, you'll get that reference. If you didn't, you won't. But uh, Nicodemus, he, he, he comes out and meets with Nick at night. Nicodemus is the one that Jesus gives this very famous uh, talk to where he tells them that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's Nicodemus. He's telling that too, John 3, 16. So we go back to, the, to, back to the north, back to Cana after Jerusalem. They go back up to Cana. While he's there, Jesus runs into a, a nobleman, a man who's, got, who's a ruler. He's got some authority. Um, oh, wait, but first he has to go through Samaria. He says, I have to go through Samaria. Now, this is unusual because I know if it looks like from Jerusalem up to Cana, you would always have to go through Samaria, but most of the good Jews would cross over the Jericho, come up through the Decapolis, and come around to go to Cana because they didn't want to be around the Samaritans. There was a, a lot of conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so, but Jesus says we had to go through Samaria, and while he's there, he has a uh, conversation. He has this encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well. And he's able to tell her everything that's happened in her life. And she is blown away. And she's so amazed that she goes and tells the whole town, like, this is what's happened. This is the man. Come and meet this man who is the Messiah. And uh, a movement of God breaks out in Samaria. It's amazing. This is maybe the first person that Jesus ever revealed to that he was the Messiah. This, this woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And she goes and tells everybody what happened. And there's this movement of God that happens in Samaria because she shared her story. And it's incredible. Now, a lot of us won't ever get to see that happen because we don't like to share our story. We don't like to let people know that we're actually sinful, that we have things happening in our lives, that we're not perfect. And so we kind of put on this face, and especially when we come to church, we come in here on a day like today, and we, we put on this uh, air of perfection. And even if we don't want people to believe we're perfect, we don't want them to know like really what's going on in our hearts. And so we pretend that we've got it all together. We pretend that we're happy. We pretend that our life is generally pretty good. And then we go home and we think about it by ourselves all the time. When really, if we want to see a movement of God, we need to be willing to, to, to fess up, right? We need to be willing to confess. We need to be we need to take the advice of the great theologian Taylor Swift and say, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me, right? We don't want to do that. We don't want to confess that we've got an issue. So instead, we'll not probably won't see a movement of God in our lives unless we do that. We pretend to be great. So, but that's what the woman in the well did. She, she said she's not afraid to share a story with anyone. She, she didn't lose sight of the fact that her story had power. Friends, don't lose sight of the fact that your story has power, that your story could be so meaningful for someone else because they may not realize that you're struggling with what you're struggling with. But if you are willing to tell that to somebody and share that with somebody, that could be the exact thing that they need to move them toward the kingdom of God. So back to Cana. Uh, he's greeted there when Jesus gets through Samaria, he comes back up to Cana. He's greeted by a nobleman from Capernaum over here. Uh, Capernaum, again, was a, a center of Roman power. Uh, this nobleman comes down and says, my son is sick, but I know you can heal him. I believe you can heal him. So Jesus does. He heals him from Cana all the way in Capernaum. He heals him long distance. This is the second miracle that we see in the life of Jesus. And in fact, in the first half of his ministry, 
That's the only two we read about. Two miracles in the first 18 to 20 months of Jesus's ministry. Uh, why? Well, because he's, he's getting to know his disciples. He's relating. He's taking them places. He's walking around with them. And so after that happens, uh, something major happens in the life of Jesus, and that is that John the Baptist goes to prison. Uh, Herod, who's the ruler of this part of Israel, uh, has married his brother's wife, and John the Baptist realizes that's sinful, so he starts speaking out against Herod, and Herod doesn't like that. He doesn't want people speaking out against so he has John the Baptist put in prison. And uh, now up to this point, John the Baptist had been carrying this message to the people, repent for the kingdom of God is near. And so at this point when John is put in prison, two significant things happen. One, Jesus starts carrying that message, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But two, he moves his ministry headquarters from his home down here near Nazareth up to Capernaum, supposedly because that's where some of his disciples are from. And so he moves his ministry headquarters up to Capernaum. Now, this is a, a year and a half into Jesus' earthly ministry, 18 to 20 months probably. Um, and that's what happens. Now, he goes back down to Jerusalem after that for the, uh, for the Feast of the Jews. And while he's there, he heals a sick man by the pool of Bethesda. We're now in the second half of his earthly ministry and the miracles are gonna pick up here. Uh, Jesus heads back home to Capernaum where he runs into Simon, Andrew, James, and John fishing on the shore of Gat Shores of the Sea of Galilee right up here. And he tells them, hey, follow me and I'll teach you to fish for people. Now, they've already been following him for a year and a half, all right? This is not the first time he's run into these guys, but uh, he runs in and says, I'm gonna change the things you think about. You're not gonna fish for fish anymore. See, up till this point, these guys have been walking with them and then when uh, they need to go back and uh, raise some money, they'll go fishing again. Jesus says, I want you to drop your nets. You're not gonna fish for fish anymore. You're gonna go fish for people. I'm gonna teach you how to fish for men. And so that's what happens. They pick up and their lives change, their priorities change, they drop everything and they give their lives to something greater with eternal impact. Jesus says, I'm going I'm to teach you to fish for people. Then what do you do if you're going to teach somebody to fish? What do you have to do? You have to take them on a fishing trip, right? So Jesus immediately takes them on several fishing trips. He, he goes, they go to Peter's house in, in, uh, in Bethsaida where he heals Peter's mother-in-law so that she can make them lunch, I guess. And then uh, they make a tour through several synagogues in Galilee, and Jesus goes and, and teaches, and the disciples get to hear him teach. And then Jesus fills their net with, nets with fish. He heals a leper. He heals a paralytic man. Did I mention that the miracles are going to pick up here? Uh, and then finally, he calls Levi, a tax collector, the worst kind of sinner. He calls Levi to come and be a follower of his, and all the other disciples are like, whoa, hey, let's don't get crazy about this. But he says, no, Levi, come and follow me. And he does, and he becomes a disciple, and he, we come to know him as Matthew. He's one of the guys that writes one of the Gospels. He was a tax collector. And next, Jesus takes his disciples through this grain field where they start picking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, and this causes a big controversy with the religious leaders of the day because you're not supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath, but not nearly as big as when Jesus declares that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, that sets them off. Then they start going crazy. Then he heals a man with a withered hand. And by now there are huge crowds following him. They want to see the miracles. They want to be part of the miracles. His ministry is growing. He needs to start raising up leaders. And so only now does Jesus appoint the 12 apostles. We have this picture of Jesus, like for his whole ministry, he had these 12 guys that were following him. And it's not until this time that Jesus, it's probably two years or more than two years into his ministry that he appoints 12 apostles, 12 leaders of ministry. Now, somewhere in here too is where he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know the exact location of that. Uh, Matthew and Mark who have 
the biggest portions of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't really place it in time, but in Luke, it's in Luke chapter 6. It's right around here. Uh, this is where we see it. Um, then he uh, raises a widow's son, and then he's invited to the home of a Pharisee where a woman comes in and anoints his feet. Uh, this is where Jesus starts telling parables. Now, parables are uh, just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, but they're a way that Jesus communicates with people who aren't his disciples. He tells his disciples the truth. He tells parables to the crowds. Uh, seemingly, the bigger the crowd, the more cryptic his message starts to get. Uh, and then he sends out his 12 apostles to go spread the good news. He, he sends them uh, throughout the Decapolis and into Galilee. He says, hey, go, go spread the good news. And they come back full of joy. Uh, this is the one time we see Jesus and his disciples that are full of joy because they've gone out and they've told people about the kingdom of God coming. But that joy doesn't last long because they come back and find out that John the Baptist has been beheaded. And uh, this is really where his ministry is going to speed up now because he senses the end of his life. So then he feeds 5,000 men with their families. That night he walks across the Sea of Galilee, uh, frightening his followers or his uh, disciples. Then he travels to Genesaret. He goes across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum down to Genesaret, which is right around here somewhere. And people start bringing their uh, sick and injured to Jesus, and he heals them all. It's amazing. And then he feeds 4,000 men and their families. Oh, it's at this point, by the way, that Peter declares to Jesus. Jesus says, who do, who do the people say I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, it's on that rock. I will build my church. This is where Jesus says that. And then he feeds 4,000 men and their families. This is separate from the 5,000 men and their families that he fed earlier. And then Jesus sends out 72 disciples to go spread the good news. I want you to see this pattern real quick. Jesus was the teacher for the first half of his ministry. He was teaching the disciples. And then he sent out the 12. And then he sent out the 72. Do you see what he's doing here? He's training up disciples. He's teaching them to fish for people. I'm going to take you on some fishing trips, teach you how to fish for people. Then I'm going to send you out to go fish for people on your own. Then you're going to come back, tell me what you've learned. And then you're going to take more and you're going to go out and send more. So this is the pattern that he's got. Uh, after that, he heals some more people. And then he gets word that Lazarus is sick. So he goes to Bethany uh, down here near Jerusalem. Bethany is down in this area. He goes to Bethany and finds out that Lazarus has died and he raises him from the dead. Uh, this is pretty much the end of the road for Jesus. He continues to teach. He goes back to Jerusalem for his final Passover where he clears out the temple again. He, he tells all the money changers, you're, you're turning my father's house into a den of thieves. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they get upset. He's taken away their income. All these people are talking about how Lazarus, the guy named Lazarus was raised from the dead. Uh, we've had enough. It's time. We need to get rid of this guy. This guy's a problem. And so they finally get Judas, uh, one of his own to agree, uh, agree to betray Jesus. Uh, he has one last meal with his friends before Passover where he washes, they, he washes their feet. He shares that there's gonna be a new covenant, a new covenant based in his blood where uh, we, you and I, the Gentiles, will be able to come to Jesus as well, that, that he's gonna pay for all of our sins. And then uh, they walk over to the Garden of Gethsemane where they spend the night. He spends the night in prayer and uh, early in the morning, uh, contingent of Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders confront Jesus, led by Judas, uh, and he's taken in front of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And uh, he wants to set them free. In fact, Paul talked about this last week three times. Pontius Pilate wanted to set him free, but the Jewish leaders insist that uh, he be crucified. 
And so he is then scourged or flogged. Paul talked about that last week too, how terrible of punishment that was. And uh, the Roman guard dresses him in a purple robe and a crown of thorns. If you read this chapter last week, John chapter 20, you see so much symbolism here about Jesus being crowned as king with his crown of thorns and this purple robe. And they meant it ironically, but it's not at all ironic in there. And then uh, they make him carry his own cross and he carries it up the hill to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he's nailed to that cross where every breath is agony, every heartbeat, is harder than the last. Every passing moment gets darker and harder and more painful until right before dark, a spear is thrust into his side and blood and water gushes out and he gives up his last breath and he says, it is finished. And that's where we left him. Last week, that's where we left Jesus. Up to chapter 19, we left Jesus dead and in the grave, but the good news is he's not dead. He's not dead. He's alive. The good news for you and me is that Jesus is alive because on Friday, he died a real death. Okay, Jesus died a real human death. Let's not rush past that. But on Sunday, God raised him from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we are here. Because of that, we worship him. Because of that, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, our Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior. And that very picture, that picture of death and being raised to life, that is what baptism symbolizes, death of the old self and rebirth in Christ. For any of us, no, for all of us, if we want our life to be better, if we want our life to be great, if we want our life to count for something, the first thing we have to do is die. And I don't mean to get to the end of your natural life and die or to die of some sickness or some disease or some accident. I'm talking about we have to choose to die to ourselves. I overheard a conversation this week that one of our pastors was having with a Genesis person and pastor asked him, tell me your story to which this guy said, I'm just like every other American Christian. I grew up in church. I go to church. And I heard this story and I wanted to say, no, no. No, that's not what this is all about. That's not the goal. That's, that's not enough. The call of Jesus is much higher than that. The call of Jesus is to come and die. We have to die to ourselves. In other words, we have to set aside the things that we want, the, the things that we desire. We have to set aside our own priorities and exchange them for the priorities of God, for the things of God. In fact, I just want you guys to know, everybody in this room, everybody that we know, we all have to die once. Some of us get to live twice. And those are the ones who choose to die to ourselves before our natural death comes. And we're gonna celebrate that today. We're gonna celebrate three people who have made that decision to die to themselves, to put their hope and their trust in Jesus, to, to put, make the, his priorities their priorities. And we're gonna celebrate that through baptism here in just a minute. We've gotta to die to the things of this world and we're gonna celebrate three people who have done that. But before we, I'm gonna invite our lead pastor, Paul Mumal to the stage to take over the baptisms. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you sent your son Jesus uh, to live a sinless life to die an atoning death on the cross, a death that we deserved and to be raised to life through the power of your spirit that lives inside of us today. We we celebrate that today with you. We wanna baptize uh, these three people, the seven across our two campuses today uh, in the name of you, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we celebrate that, but Lord, you deserve the glory for this. We don't wanna take any of your glory right now. And so we just praise you and we thank you. We worship you for what you're doing in these lives. In Jesus' name, amen.